Stand by. Business Power Hour starts in 25 seconds. Fifteen seconds. Ten seconds. The Business Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And a very special edition for you this evening. We are going to be talking with Christo Visa, the former chairman of Steinhoff, and uh, getting an update from him how things are going, particularly in the light of what happened uh, with the announcement yesterday that Steinhoff's lawyers are going to be uh, providing us with or paying some of the legal fees. Uh, also tonight, coming up later, Bob Skinstadt will give us some insights on what the implications are of the Lions Tour going ahead later this year. We'll also be finding out more about cannabis curing cancer and uh, a car review on Volvo. So lots coming up um, in the next 60 minutes of the Biz News Power Hour. Our guest co-host tonight is none other than the inimitable Magnus Haystick. But first, let's find out what happened in the news from our colleague Jackie Cameron. The Democratic Alliance has slammed the government's plan to rescue the bankrupt SAA, stating that claims of a successful rescue are a complete fiction. DA member of the Standing Committee on Public Accounts, Elf Lees, says that the business rescue process has cost South African taxpayers just under 8 billion rand in bailouts since it began in December 2019. He says the DA will make every effort to ensure that the SAA business rescue practitioners, SAA board and the Minister of Public Enterprises, Pravin Gordon, cease what he says is collective obfuscation and give clear and unambiguous answers when they appear before the Standing Committee on Public Accounts on Thursday. A bond designed to raise funds to grow the population of endangered black rhinos in South Africa will be sold by the World Bank this year. The five-year 670 million rand security will be the world's first wildlife conservation bond. The aim is to sell it in the middle of the year. Returns for investors will be determined by the rate of growth of the populations of the animals in two South African reserves in the Eastern Cape. If successful, the program could be expanded to protect black rhino populations in Kenya as well as other wildlife species such as lions, tigers, gorillas and orangutans. Under the terms of the rhino bond, investors will forego an annual coupon and will instead receive their original capital and an additional payout depending on how much the rhino population has grown over five years. The principal of the bond and the possible payout at maturity will be paid by the Global Environment Facility, which has received donations from more than 40 countries. Of the 29,000 rhinos made up of five species globally, about 80% are in South Africa. Botswana is offering rights to shoot about 300 elephants as the southern African country, which has the world's biggest population of the animals, tries to breathe life into a hunting industry stalled by the COVID-19 outbreak. Bloomberg reports that the hunting season will begin on April the 6th 
with licenses to kill leopards, zebras and buffaloes also on sale. Tesla CEO Elon Musk has announced that people in the United States can now buy a Tesla using Bitcoin. Musk said on Twitter that Tesla is using only internal and open source software and operates Bitcoin nodes directly. The Bitcoin paid to Tesla to purchase a vehicle will be retained as Bitcoin and not converted to fiat currency. The Tesla CEO added that pay-by-Bitcoin capability will be made available outside the US later this year. Earlier this year, Musk helped to boost the Bitcoin price after he declared he was a supporter of the largest cryptocurrency. In February, Tesla announced that it had invested $1.5 billion US dollars in Bitcoin, making it the biggest company yet to back the cryptocurrency. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. For more on these stories, do go to BizNews Radio or biznews.com. You're listening to the BizNews Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, Justin Rowe Roberts is still in Cape Town. Uh, nice to see you in the FMR studios there, Justin. $1.5 billion that Elon Musk put into Bitcoin. Now he's going to accept it as currency. Wow. What's going on with our markets today? The JSE All Share Index was flat at 65,200. Some of the day's highlights include the JSE was down over 7 Rand to 110 Rand a share. Harmony Gold shared 2. 2 Rand 50 to 60 Rand a share on the back of weaker gold spot prices. NASDAQ bound car track increased by over 2 Rand to 74 Rand a share. And lastly, NASPA spin off process lost 22 Rand to 1,640 Rand a share as 10 cent was weaker in Hong Kong this morning. In the currency markets, the Rand was flat against all the major currencies at 14 Rand 83 cents to the dollar, 20 Rand 35 cents to the pound, and 17 Rand 55 cents to the euro. Gold is low at $1,700 an ounce. Brent crude is up strongly at $63.60 a barrel. And Bitcoin is trading at 840,000 Rand. JSE Limited down 6% today. That's a big move. What's behind that, Justin? Alec, the share went X dividend today. So the JSE paid an ordinary dividend and they paid a special dividend and it went X dividend today. That's the reason for the 6% decrease. So no need to get worried about that. It's, it's welcome, a warm welcome to Christo Visa, uh, former chairman of Steinhoff, one of the, one of the titans of South African business. Christo, lovely to have you on the program. Um, Bitcoin, I suppose now you, you probably think, goodness, if only I'd invested in Bitcoin rather than Steinhoff. Well, can you just imagine? I mean, how that some would look, uh, Alec. Yeah. Yeah, what a story. But uh, and, and you've been right in the middle of it. Before we go more in, into some more detail, yesterday's announcement that Steinhoff is going to settle legal claims. Can you unpack that for us and, and what it means for you? Well, uh, Alec, you know, the fact of the matter is after the implosion in December 2017, uh, it was only in April 2018, uh, some four months later, that Steinhoff acknowledged that there was fraud and accounting irregularities or whatever they called it. At that time, I issued summons for the money that I invested in Steinhoff, which was close to 60 billion rand. But in issuing the summons, I wrote a letter to the company to say that on the face of it, There was no way that all the creditors and claimants could hope to recover 100 cents in the rand. And therefore, my proposal is that as soon as possible, 
there should be an attempt to reach a settlement. Uh, in the event, uh, it took more than three years for other people to come to the same conclusion. During those three years, billions of rands were spent on uh, various uh, lawyers, auditors, etc., because people did not see the sense of reaching a settlement. So finally, at least, we are now at a point where hopefully a settlement will be reached. I, I know you like history, and uh, is it something like the Battle of Britain where Winston Churchill said it's not the end, but it could be the end of the beginning? Or it's not the beginning of the uh, end, but it could be the end of the beginning, something where, like that? Yeah, 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 no, yeah that's, as I recall it, uh, he said uh, uh, this is not the end, and it's not even uh, the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning. Yeah, is that where uh, we and are? I suppose... I, I think that would be a fair, uh, fair description of the state of play as far as Steinhoff is concerned. Krista, you by far the biggest loser in the whole Steinhoff saga, but there are thousands and thousands of small investors who have also lost a lot of money that, um, on, the, on the fraud. What do you suggest to them, given that they don't have your resources to do the legal battles that you are going to engage in? No, but uh, I think, Alec, if you look at what has happened, these smaller investors, they called market uh, participant claimants, MPCs, they've banded together in different uh, class action groupings. And they have, in fact, pursued their claims. And uh, although it will be modest payouts compared to their losses, uh, but that applies to all of us, uh, there will be uh, payouts to them. So I think people in that position have done what they could uh, in this unholy mess. Mm. You say modest payouts. Do you have any idea now of quantifying how much of that 60 billion rand you will be getting back? Uh, well, the, I think those numbers are now in the public domain. Uh, and... I will get 18.7 cents in the rand, uh, but, you know, also paid in, in different sort of currencies, if you will. But that will all be in the public domain if it is not already in the public domain. Other contractual claimants like myself get a higher payout, up to 29 cents in the rand, uh, that stems from the fact that I made substantial concessions in order to facilitate a settlement. And, uh, you know, I just made up my mind that, you know, philosophically, I was happy to settle for a certain amount. And I'm not going to walk around uh, begrudging the fact that other people get more. It was all in an attempt to reach a settlement because it's in nobody's interest that uh, the company should go into liquidation. And as far as your mind is concerned, given what Marcus Yester did to you, have you settled that? Yeah, I've settled that, uh, Alec, right at the beginning. You know, within the first week, I uh, made a, you know press interviews and I said, I had to look myself in the mirror. I saw 50 years of my work go up in smoke. And I had to ask myself, how are you going to cope with it? And I decided on three principles. The first one is I don't mourn the loss of money. 
money comes, money goes. Uh, and so I'm not mourning the loss of money. Number two, I count my blessings. Because if this fraud had gone on for another year or two, I was going to lose a lot more because, as you know, I was negotiating to sell some of my other assets into Steinhoff as well. It wasn't going to be a direct sale, but eventually it would probably have ended up there, and I would have lost that as well. And the third decision I took was that I'm not going to become bitter about what had happened to me uh, because, you know, nobody has a time for people who walk around bemoaning their fate and becoming bitter at the sort of betrayal that I and many other people have experienced in Steinhoff. When you say the other assets, was was, uh, ShopRite likely to head into Steinhoff? No, not ShopRite itself, but my stake in ShopRite. There was a negotiated deal that through a process – uh, that stake would eventually end up in Steinhoff as well. But it's a long, complicated history. It's all recorded. Uh, but there was going to be an interim company called Star, which essentially uh, was Pepcor, which came from me and other shareholders. And that would become, you know, the really the dominant retail player on the continent of Africa. And the whole mess that uh, Jayandra Naidu has uh, got himself into with his Lancaster, I'm sure you've been following that as well. Is that likely to end badly too? I I don't really want to comment on that, uh, uh, Alec. You know, I I have some understanding of what it is all about. And uh, obviously, uh, he's fighting his battle. And... uh, uh, as I say, I don't want to comment. It doesn't affect me at all. And, uh, you know, we will just have to sit and see what the outcome is. But you'd, you'd think that uh, you'd have a support group of some sort of uh, guys who were screwed by you getting together, having tea and perhaps uh, swapping notes. You don't do that kind of thing. No, I don't. Although, you know, that would, it wouldn't be true for me to say that I haven't spoken to other people who had, who'd also suffered substantial losses and some of them who had, in fact, become very bitter about it. Uh, yeah, you know, we sat and say, you know, how is it possible that this guy could have taken so many of us for such a ride? But then, as I've said often, Alex, in the press, that you've got to remember that these fraudsters managed to get through all the gatekeepers for a decade and more, getting through the internal auditors in Steinhoff, getting through the various audit committees, getting through the uh, main board audit committee, getting through the regulators, getting through the external auditors, getting through the ratings agencies. I mean, you know as well as I do that the ratings agencies – Look everywhere. They analyze everything to death. The bankers who lent Steinhoff tens of billions of rands, they got through all these gatekeepers. And quite frankly, what what gets me very annoyed is that people say, no, no, but Christo, you should have known. Mm -hmm. I mean, how should I have known? 
Yeah. And then this constant reference to, you know, you also did it, the ex-chairman of Steinhoff, which is factually correct. But for God's sake, I was, I was chairman of Steinhoff for 16 months. I was chairman of ShopRite for 40 years and chairman of PIPCOR for 40 years. I was chairman of the IDC for nine years. But I am now the chairman of Steinhoff. It's just, it, it's crazy how the world works. But uh, yeah. I guess people like to like to point fingers at someone and try and try and find blame somewhere. But as far yeah. as the stalwarts are concerned, you think of Yanni Mouton, who had a brilliant career. Absolutely. Uh, and, and and he didn't see anything. In fact, he was probably closer to Marcus Yester than you were. Far closer. He served on that board, if memory serves, for more than a decade. And But just look at the luminaries who, over the period, served on that board. I mean, I said in Parliament. There's hardly another company board that had the same quality of luminaries serving on the board. There wasn't a single company that I'm aware of, of which the main audit committee consisted of three people who held doctorates in accounting. Yeah. I mean, those are the facts. Those are the facts. What do you, I'm sure you've, you've, mold this over in your head many, many times. What have you learned that you can share with the rest of us that we need to be waving flags when we see another Eurster coming along? Is there anything that we should almost have you on our know, checklist? You know, Alec, I often obviously debate with friends and I say, what is it that I should have done that I didn't do? Because I explain to people I first invested in Steinhoff in 2012-13 when I sold Landsrack to what I thought was a consortium of headed by Euster. And the offer was that I would be paid for the estate in Steinhoff shares. Then Euster came with a proposal, a very clever proposal, uh, to switch my PSG shares into Steinhoff. And here is the enigma. He also put his, he had more PSG shares than I had. He also put his shares into Steinhoff, which at that stage was worth over a billion rand, a billion and a quarter, if I remember correctly. That's how I got involved. I then accepted a board appointment, and I sat there for, for three years watching how the company was run, uh, what their level of expertise was, how well they complied with all the regulatory authorities, how up to speed they were with stock exchanges, etc., etc. And everything looked perfectly in order. As I say, including the fact that Steinhoff kept getting an investment grade rating from the ratings agencies. So I say to myself, what more could I have done? Uh, and the answer is, quite simply, I don't know. Terrible as it may sound. But this lesson I have learned. If the CEO in a business himself is the main fraudster and the mastermind, you have no chance. I don't know what must happen uh, to prick the bubble. Wow. I simply don't. Have you had any contact with uh, Marcus Joester subsequent uh, to that? Last, 
No, the last time I spoke to him was on December 5th, the day of the fatal board meeting where I had to advise the board what had happened, having become aware of it only four days prior or five days prior to the meeting, uh, because Eustace the previous night sent me a message with a lawyer to say that he's offering his resignation and I must decide whether I want to accept it. So I put it to the board of Steinhoff. I said, this is what had happened. This is now what appears to have happened. And Eustace has offered his resignation. My advice is that we don't accept it, that I call him and get him to come back and to help the people sort out the mess. Because we we kind of, nobody knows where to start looking now. And I phoned him and he said to me that he will be at the office within two to three hours and he's going to help. That was the last to this day that I heard of him. So no SMSs, no WhatsApps? No, nothing. Mm. No, nothing. It, it just and I'd like our, our uh, guest co-host tonight, Magnus Hastick, to to come into the conversation in a moment. But just one final little point here: after the fact, Johann Rupert and um, Whitey Besson both said that they saw that this guy was was smelly. Um, was there anything that they saw that we? And I say we because ninety nine point nine percent of South Africans uh, were were taken in. Yeah, I. I think, Alec, no, the, the one thing is I know that Rupert and Eustace did not like each other. Uh, you know, they, they clearly were not uh, on good terms. Whitey is the only guy who very strongly said to me that he doesn't like Eustace. Uh, and, you know, he expressed his views very strongly. Sorry, it's rather like, you know, the Craig Butters story that regularly comes up. Butters spoke to me in 2009 and said that there were things in the Steinhoff accounts that bothered him. Now, I took note of it. And as I say, when I eventually went on the board, I tried to look at these things to try to make sense of it. But... I saw nothing, and something that, that I pointed out, this is something that is important to remember. You will recall that in December 2015, as Steinhoff was about to be listed in Frankfurt, there was a raid by the tax authorities in Oldenburg in Germany, and they made certain very serious uh, allegations the board of Steinhoff immediately appointed a major forensics investigation firm in Germany called FGS. They're a firm of some 160 partners and 300-odd professionals, lawyers, accountants, company law experts, etc., etc., with a brief to look at every one of the allegations made by the Oldenburg prosecutor and they, until the last day, until December 5th, had sent reports that all was in order. There was no sign of fraud or accounting irregularities or tax shenanigans. Nothing at all. 
Incredible. Uh, Magnus, I'm sure that uh, you've got something you'd like to ask Mr. Visa. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, very nice talking to Mr. Visa. I have never had the privilege of speaking to Mr. Visa after being in financial journalism for 40 years. So oh, nice well, I'm happy to, happy to meet you over the telephone and happy to be speaking to you. Your, your words when you started this interview was, must, must be one of the most honest and compelling words from someone who has gone through, uh, I would imagine, very, very deep personal waters and having casually admitted that I've lost 50 or 60 billion rand. And you said within a week you kind of made it up with yourself that you know it's only money and I have to move on and I will not let bitterness rule my life for the rest of my life. And I think that's, that is an incredibly powerful message that you've got across on the radio show today. So extremely well done on that. Where do you think, uh, I've got one or two questions, and one, one question relates to something that happened more than 40 years ago, but I'll get to that in a second. Where do you think this, this whole saga will end? Will certain people end up going to jail? I, I sincerely hope so. I think the pointers are very clear that there, there was a group of people who had been conducting this fraud, my own reading of it. You must remember the PwC report only goes back to 2009. But my own reading is that this fraud started long before that. Uh, it was carefully planned and constructed, and uh, there is no way that that I can imagine as a failed lawyer that those people will not be brought to book. But having said that, one has to understand, as I said to you earlier, look at all the gatekeepers that they got through, that therefore clearly the fraud must be extremely complicated. I made the point in the press two weeks ago that people – uh, accuse our NPA of incompetence because they haven't yet arrested anybody. The fact of the matter is that the German authorities in Oldenburg started their investigation in 2015, and they have only a week or two ago have they submitted a report to the court in Germany to decide who to prosecute. These things clearly are hugely complicated. I mean, how did they manage to get away with it for, a, for more than a decade, if it was simple? My so, second question, Mr. Visa, goes back to the days of a diamond company called Octa Diamond and a man called Johan, Johan de Villiers. Johan de Villiers, uh, yeah was at school with me, and I witnessed uh, the rise of Johan de Villiers and Okta and your involvement in Okta, and that you stepped away with some profit. And, and Johan de Villiers at one stage was worth 300 million rand, and two Absolutely. years later was, was worth zero. And I've always said yeah. if I have the opportunity to talk to you, I'd like to hear your story about Okta, the rise and fall of Johan de Villiers, which was almost yeah. uh, the equivalent of uh, uh, Marcus Joster today. If you don't mind uh, yeah. just giving full, full in it. 
Yeah, except that, that as far as Johan de Villiers was concerned, there was no fraud or irregularities or wrongdoing. Uh, it was simply a business plan that didn't work. Uh, Johan won't mind. We're still friends, although he's now been living in the United States for 40 years. But I often tell people that I have known a lot of people in my life who made money and started with nothing. Johan de Villiers is the only person I know who went to bed a de facto insolvent and woke up the next morning a multimillionaire because of the deal that we did in buying that diamond mine. He was 22 years old. And I, you know, was his partner for four years. Then I decided for my own reasons that I wanted to get out of the diamond business then. Uh, he was, everything was going very well, and he bought out my share. And things were, as you say, he was considered in those days at one stage to be worth 300 million rand. And people forget that 300 million rand in those days was more than 300 million U.S. dollars. And he was still under the age of 30. So he, he tackled a number of ventures. The diamond market took a, a serious downturn. And the rest is history. He lost everything. Is he doing okay now in the U.S., Christo? Yeah, he's doing okay. But, you know, he's now, uh, he must now be uh, 24, 46. He must now be close to 70, I he, guess. He looks 67 years old because we were at school together. <laughs> <laughs> you were at school together. Sorry, uh, that's sorry. Exactly, that's exactly how I had the story. He was worth yeah. 300 million at the age of 30. And and, yeah. and three years later, he, he, he sold it to the Ruperts for, well, he, he walked away. He, he received nothing. He walked away. You know, here, here is an interesting, another little statistic. At that stage, when I sold to him, which was 1980-81, I bought control of what was then known as PEP Stores, which listed company, which subsequently uh, became PEP Core. Now, PEP Core at the time that I did the Steinhoff deal was valued at 60 billion rand. The market capitalization, sorry, of Pep Stores, the predecessor, at that time was 80 million rand. So that's just to put for you in context. If Johan de Villiers had sold the mine after he bought my 50% for an offer that he had out of Australia, and he bought Pep, and he built it the way we built it, over the following decades, he would have been worth $60 billion. There's got to be a book in there somewhere, Christo. Are you thinking about it? Book. <laughs> that, that, that story about the Okta diamond mine and the rise and fall uh, is a fascinating story. It's, it's movie stuff. But the book about your life? Yeah. Is it coming? People have often asked me, and, you know, here was my reply, Alec. If you write a book about your life, there's no point unless you tell the truth. And if I have to tell the stark truth, then I will embarrass an awful lot of people, including myself. 
I've, I've got yeah. to ask you to share the story about the uber truths. What's the difference between the normal truth and the uber truths? Now, here is the difference. When you study law, you are taught that the definition of the truth is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But then there is a fourth element. That is an uber-truth. That is something that is so true and so well known as the truth that you don't have to ever express it. I mean, why should I tell you that the sun rises in the east? It is an uber-truth. And where people go wrong, politicians mainly, is they say something sometime, forgetting that what and expressing an uber-truth not realizing that what they are saying is not necessarily what the other person is hearing. We all make that mistake. Uh, just before we let you go, and thank you, you've uh, you've done amazingly well with your croaky voice, uh, which didn't, which has come across great. I hope it didn't come across too croaky. Not at all, not at all. But the whole Brait story. It's almost yeah. like you were, you were given a punch in the stomach from Steinhoff and then a roundhouse came in another company that you'd built. And I was just looking at the share price from in the last yeah. five years, it's gone down 98.5%, even with Absolutely. the recent improvement. What, what happened there, Christian? What have you learned from no, that story? Very simple. I mean, that, that I can answer very simple. But about the punch in the stomach, Alec, I often tell people that, Somebody told me that Buddhists believe that in your life you've given a chunk of good luck and then a chunk of bad luck. And if you are not spineless, when the bad luck chunk comes, you put your nose to the grindstone and you start working through it, hopefully until the good luck comes again, as it will. Now... I like that. I like that. That'll that'll get a lot of us through some difficult times for sure. Nice one. I hope it does. The punch in the stomach, if you analyze it, in April 2018, that is four months after Steinhoff, the ShopRite share price was 280 rand a share. My shareholding then worth north of 20 billion. The ShopRite share price, and ShopRite is an outstanding company. It is a brilliant company. That share price in 2019, 20, yeah, 2019 went to below 100. My paper loss from 20 billion came from 20 billion to 6 billion. It was 14 billion gone. Breit at one stage traded at a 30% premium to net asset value. It was clearly, hopelessly overvalued. What happened with Breit? It bought assets, brilliant assets. If you analyze it, the one asset was New Look, virtually wiped out by Brexit, over which Breit had no control, you are aware of the that the high street in England had been decimated. Philip Green's empire, which was valued in 2015-16 at three and a half billion pounds, went bust in December, worth nothing.
three and a half billion pounds gone. That same NATO heat break in terms of new look, Virgin, which is a fantastic company, lockdown, COVID, who could have foreseen it? Suddenly, you have a year in which you can't open the gyms. We had to battle through that. And, and so the list goes on. So I took a hell of a knock in the break share price. The value is there, and I'm hoping that it'll come back. There are very good people working with me, and we're building it. And please, God, it will come back. Another one, brilliant little company, Invicta. The share price six months ago was at four rand from a high of 80 rand. In six months, it had gone from four rand to 21 rand. And it's on its way, and the value is there, and it will again be, it is a great company, but it will again hopefully do great things. Not because of me, but because of the people who are in it. Christo, thank you for joining us tonight on the Biz News Power Hour. Pleasure. For sharing sharing wonderful stories and uh, and lots of insights as well. We look forward to speaking with you again, uh, particularly when, when when uh, when perhaps the Germans have come to South Africa and picked up Marcus Joster and taken him off there yeah. to put him in behind bars. Do you think that could ever happen? Just to close with. Well, I don't know. My suspicion would be that uh, you know these prosecuting authorities, no doubt will be cooperating with each other. They will have some kind of game plan. Uh, I can't imagine that the Germans, when they do decide to issue the arrest warrant, and just so that you understand how it works in Germany, as it was told to me, it's like the American system where you have a grand jury who issues an indictment, and then the prosecutor decides to prosecute. They've now gone through that first phase, and it's now up to some sort of court to decide whether they are now starting the prosecution. But I, I can't see them going to the hassle of applying for an extradition of whoever uh, is named, um, because I'm sure they are well aware that a prosecution in South Africa will come. And that's just a much simpler and more direct way. But, uh, you know, I, I have no inside knowledge of how that's going to play out. As you, as you self-deprecatingly said, a failed lawyer. <laughs> but you do yeah, know the well, law more than the rest of us. Yeah, well, thanks very much yeah. again, Christo, for joining us tonight. Okay, Alex. Thanks. Uh, have a nice evening. And you. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Okay, Justin. Now, this guy was worth tens of billions of rands um, even before you were born. And he's one of the titans of, of South African business. What did you make of Christo Visa's contribution tonight? And like, honestly, one of um, the most interesting conversations I've ever overheard. And if, quite frankly, if I wasn't so out of my depth, I would have loved to ask a few questions. It's a little bit unfortunate that a lot of the questions and answers were from 30 or 40 years ago uh, when I wasn't around. But I think he gave great advice um, for everyone listening. And um, when it comes to investments, th- that is what they do. They go through their ups and downs. And I've got no doubt a company like Brait and like Invicta, like Steinoff, can rise um, in, the, in the years to come.
It's nice the, the point he made about Invicta. My goodness, Magnus, we missed that one at four rand a share down from in the 80s. We missed many shares, but I'm glad you have you know, got that answer out of Christo about Okta because Okta and your late friend, our late friend David Cott, wrote an article in 1981 about this where they struck a pocket of diamonds in Okta and in a space of six months, they literally made 100 million rand. And it was at that time that um, Johan bought out Christo and Christo walked away with um, the seed capital for what became his massive empire. So my recollection is 100% correct. What I, what I did not ask Christo Visa wanted to tell him, he was, Johan de Vines was offered 300 million rand by none other than Harry Oppenheimer to buy the Octomine. And Johan de Villiers turned around and said, Mr. Oppenheimer, soon I'll be taking your company over. And, and the old man just kind of looked at him and said, we will talk again. And then the diamond market collapsed. And Johan literally fled South Africa with a bag of diamonds. I actually met an aerostess who was on the plane uh, who, who admitted this, that uh, they fled the country, the wife and kids, and never came back. So uh, I saw that story, but that is the seed capital for the huge Christo Visa empire. And that happened in 1981, 1982. So quite a bit of a scoop for you tonight, Mr. Hogg. What a story. What a story. Uh, we've got another nice story. A, a gentleman is well known in the Western Cape and all over the country. Uh, Bob Skinstad, Springbok captain, um, great rugby player, now a, a top-rate commentator in the UK where he m- mostly finds himself lately. Today you might remember, guys, that uh, there was the announcement that the Lions Tour is going ahead in South Africa. Now, it, on the face of it, we, this is not a sports program, but the economic impact of the British and Irish Lions coming to South Africa is huge not just for the television rights, but the, all the supporters who come along with it and spend their juicy pounds. I asked Bob, and it would be interesting to see what uh, you guys make of this, um, uh, to take us through all of this. He also, by the way, had some quite good investment or, or, or share advice. We, had a, a, we spoke about a couple of stocks that Pit Yun really liked that Bob knows well. But that's all in the full podcast, which is on Biz News Radio, on Spotify and iTunes. But here's a little excerpt from our conversation today. Well, there's fantastic news today for South Africa in that the Lions Tour, the Lions Rugby Tour to the country, is not going to Australia, not going to be held in the UK, but in fact is going ahead here in South Africa. Uh, former Springbok rugby captain, World Cup winning Springbok, Bob Skinstad, good friend of mine, is in the UK at the moment. Bob, how was the news greeted over there? It's a funny one, you know. I, I think it's been greeted as positive because everybody wants to see this this clash between these two countries happen, and it's got to be good for sport and it's got to be good for rugby, etc. But then I would say a little bit bittersweet because so many people are used to the really positive ramifications of an amazing supporter-led backing for, for the Lions on the tour, and 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 that's part of that that's part of the appeal. So. The announcement, which is is amazing, that it will go ahead, and that they're not going to take up any of the the other options, which are which were potentially Australia and even here in the the British Isles, isn't good. But there haven't been full 
declaration of, of what that will mean. You know, can, can people tour and, and support the Lions? Because everybody talks about, you know, the Lion 16th man, which we know is, is the, the, the army of, of loud and, and rugby-loving supporters. And, of course, they bring pounds with them, and lots of them. Oh, well, of course, you know, the, the effect on the economy and, and our economy, particularly in a, in a post-COVID world where all the tourism outlets and, and establishments have been so uh, affected, adversely affected, would be an amazing shot in the arm for, for South and Southern Africa. Um, so, so that's why I said bittersweet, you know, because, because nobody's got real clarity on what that means. And, and, you know, we were all looking forward to a, a full-on Lions tour where the the current world champions take on one of the best touring teams of all time, and, and it's all as it was. But in the world at the moment, is anything as it was. So it's going to be played at the end of June no matter what. The big question is whether or not those fans who bring all their pounds to South Africa are going to be coming as well, i.e. will they be allowed in the stadiums? When do we know? Yeah, do we have right. any idea when that decision might be made on that? I, th- I think I think both the Lions Rugby Board and and you know South African rugby officials will 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 be monitoring it every day. I don't I don't envy them. It's a it's a really difficult task, and I think they've done a good job to to get some resolution thus far. I think they'll also be dictated to by the powers that be in in, in government. How many vaccines have been rolled out? What kind of interaction are people going to be having with people who potentially are are, are still uh, a COVID risk? Are the players going to be in a bubble? Are the South African players going to have to train and, and manage themselves in a bubble like we saw in, in the rugby championship this year between New Zealand, Argentina and Australia, which South Africa didn't feel comfortable on, on the safety protocols to participate in? So there are lots of question marks, Alec, and, and I, just, I, I hope they don't detract from what is an a, amazing part of world rugby. Well, an interesting story, an interesting aside on that. Obviously, uh, there are many people who are hoping that we can get into the stadiums. But how important, Magnus, from a, a broad economic perspective, is an event like this? Well, I think the numbers are big. And I think that the tourism industry are desperately hoping that it will go ahead and that the fans can come. So that will unleash a lot of spending from abroad and also from South Africans wanting to travel around the country, watching the Lions games, because it's a once-in-a-12-year event. I think there's a, a massive amount of pent-up uh, money lying around waiting to be spent in, in people's bank accounts, and we've seen reports that that is quite true. People have not been able to go overseas for almost a year now. They've, they've kept that money in reserve. That tour will be a sellout in an instant, and it'll be a welcome boost for, of optimism for our country and, and we would love to see some foreigners in the Cape because I've been down in the Cape here for four months. And I must tell you, without the foreign tourism, the, 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 the wine lands and the hotels and, and every, everybody connected are really batting. They really do need the tourists. Well, another story that we're on to is our editor at large, Jackie Cameron, has been following up a, a fascinating development from a listed company called Labatt. Uh, we had Brian van Rooyen talking about rugby, the former SAFU uh, president, in studio a little while ago. And he told us about how cannabis products are curing cancer. Uh, Jackie, we had a, a chat today to the players in this, and uh, it's, it's well worth listening to. Dr. Shiksa Gallo is a medical scientist and a doctor in clinical pathology. 
She's also the medical director for JSC-listed Labatt's Biodata, a division which is undertaking groundbreaking research on the use of medical cannabis to treat serious illnesses ranging from cancer to autoimmune diseases. She spoke to me, Jackie Cameron of BizNews, about why cannabis has healing properties and what her research is showing so far about shrinking tumors and pushing people who are gravely ill into remission. There are also signs that cancer sufferers on cannabis may be protected to some extent against COVID-19. Take a listen. Now, these cannabinoids are very important because it stimulates the immune system, and that is what we need to fight any diseases. What we found in medicine is most of the diseases that we found, the reasons for them, we found that there's an endocannabinoid deficiency. I just want to go one step back so the listeners can understand. So normally when a baby is born, Jackie, we normally say, please breastfeed that baby. The reason why we say we need the baby breastfed is the highest amount of endocannabinoids are found in breast milk. And that's how important endocannabinoids are for immunity and forming all your organs and resulting in homeostasis. So now what is the link now between this endocannabinoid system and the medical cannabis or the cannabis plant? When we actually uh, look at as life goes on, as I mentioned, we have stresses in the body, we have uh, things that we eat that are not correct, we have toxins that build up in the body, and that's what creates diseases. What we have found is the phytocannabinoids. So phytocannabinoids is what we call the extracts out of the cannabis plant. So these phytocannabinoids mimic the endocannabinoids in the body. We also have receptors in the body called CB1 and CB2 receptors in the body. So when you actually take medical cannabis from the plant itself, the body recognizes this as its own endocannabinoids and you have it unlocking the potential for healing. Okay, so so the difference between the pharmaceutical meds and the medical cannabis, Jackie, is pharmaceutical drugs, they work on a single system and single receptor sites, whereas cannabis will work on the entire endocannabinoid system level, and this establishes and maintains a health at the nexus of homeostasis. What it means is we are regulating multiple systems simultaneously with the medical cannabis, whereas with the pharmaceutical drug, you're only working with a single receptor site. Hence, when you're taking medical cannabis, yes, you can take it for pain, but at the same time, when you're taking it for pain, it is also healing the body. When you take a Panado, for example, it is just stopping or blocking that pain receptor site and stopping your pain. With medical cannabis, it's going to stop your pain, but because it's regulating multiple systems simultaneously, it's also going to start healing the body. What we've been doing, uh, Jackie, we call them case studies. So we are not making any medical claim here, just to make it clear to everybody, because there are regulations in the country, you're only allowed to make a medical claim if you have done formal clinical trials. And we have not yet done formal clinical trials. However, there are a lot of published studies in other countries that have done formal clinical trials. So with regards to the cancer, Jackie, we have done some great work with case studies on patients. And it started just where we're looking at palliative care, you know, patients that are on chemo, how can we support them uh, with regards to nausea, vomiting, and all the side effects that patients have been having. And then what we found is with the research that we've been doing that even patients that have stopped chemo, a lot of patients have actually gone into full-time remission without even having chemo. For example, the prostate cancer patients that we've actually taken and did a full write-up case study, we've uh, put a complete uh, 12 patients into remission. We have a database of 350 patients. Of that database of 350 patients, only two of our patients actually picked up COVID. 
And most of our patients are immune compromised patients. So I'm trying to find there's definitely a direct link with all the patients that are on cannabis that have such strong immune systems that even if they did pick up COVID, they didn't even end up serious enough to, to have death or any serious side effects from, from COVID. That was Dr. Shiksha Gallo of Biodata. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. For the full interview, look for the podcast on BizNews Radio, which is available on all the main podcast channels, including Spotify. What an interesting story. We've been covering in ivermectin quite a lot, or Jackie has, as you well know, Justin. But now it sounds like uh, you should go and have a little joint every night and get your immune system up. Exactly, Alec. I, I myself am not so much of a pot fan, but I am a pot stocks fan, and those have been running very hard of late. Yeah, Labatt is the only one we've got on the JSC, 31 cents, so uh, it's, it sounds a little bit to me like purple capital. If you get in early, forget about it, put it in the bottom drawer, who knows in five years' time. Exactly, Alec. And the one thing around these pot stocks that seems to be the common theme is regulation. And currently in South Africa, the regulation is tight. We see in the U.S. it's um, freeing up a little bit, and we've seen how those companies have run. So if Labatt can get the South African government on their side, I'm sure there's lots of upside there. Magnus, you have an eye for the early early bird. Uh, you were in biotech stocks long before the rest of us were even thinking about them. Are pot stocks attracting, attracting you? I just want to say before I answer that question that now that pot is legal in South Africa, it doesn't taste as nice when it was illegal. Yeah, man, But having said that, you know, it, it is a very fascinating product. And if you get the regulatory framework behind you, as you've just said, you know, it is a product that is used by a very large percentage of our population, whether it was legal or illegal. And we wasted so much time, money and effort blocking our people because they're smoking a herb, which was considered bad and now it's good. So, yes, um, I think that can be a sleeper and one needs to watch the regulator more than you actually watch the company. So whether Labatt is the one or there might be other companies already in, 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 in preparation phase coming to the market, but if the market can open like it has in Canada and, and the United States, you, you have a massive, massive market in South Africa for a cannabis product which is acceptable to the government and to the regulator. It could be, some, could be very, very exciting. And we also have our finance minister, Tito Mbuweni, as a big fan. Uh, uh, he's often posts pictures of the pot plants, uh, i.e. The, the marijuana or dacha plants on his farm up in Machubas Kloof. So at least there's one guy in the cabinet who's on side. Somebody who is on our team, who is, is a most unusual uh, guy, is Jared Neves. He, he writes beautifully, as we know, uh, those who, who follow his beginner's guides, if you like, to some of the uh, investing in share markets and finding out more about the financial world. But his I won't say his real passion, but his big passion is motor vehicles. And he's looking every week at a new car for us. Here is what he found with a Volvo. Now, this is quite important because we have a member of staff who believes that Volvos are better than Peugeots, and we'll have to see whether or not this is right. Let's hear from Jared. Jared Neves, our motoring journalist, is with us now, and we're talking about a Volvo SUV, which is attracting the attention of younger women. Yes, not just younger women, a lot of younger people in general. Uh, the XC40 is Volvo's smallest SUV offering, but it has 
a lot to offer. So this is the T5 all-wheel drive R design. T5 just designates that it's got uh, the higher power output of the two-liter four-cylinder. The R design is essentially a trim level, which just gives you a bit of a sportier look and some R design interior features, basically. And you say in an article you've written for Biz News that the T5 offers sprightly performance. What does that mean? So you'd think, looking at it, that it wouldn't be a very fast car necessarily. But uh, the T5 basically, well, let me start from the beginning. T5 is quite a famous badge for Volvo. It was uh, basically what you could say changed the mindset of people on Volvo. People before used to think, oh, Volvos are stately, practical, boxy, a bit boring, you know. Old men. Basically, yes, basically. And in the 90s, they started coming out with rather sporty, interesting vehicles like the T5, the T5R, which was available in the 850. And suddenly, Volvo was the maker of sporty, desirable sedans. So as the years progressed, the T5 badge started to basically mean performance Volvo. And uh, you could say that the T5 XC40 is the performance variant in the range. So it has a 2-liter turbocharged petrol engine, which produces 185 kilowatts and 350 newton meters of torque. For a high-riding SUV, it is quite sprightly, uh, 6.4 seconds to 100. It sends its power through an eight-speed automatic to all four wheels, so it's all-wheel drive. And Volvo claims that it sips just 7.7 litres of petrol for every 100 kilometres it travels, although it will do a bit more than that. South Africa's roads are notoriously bad for potholes. Is this the kind of car that can withstand potholes and get you from here to a remote place in Salem Popo without your wheels bursting without your tires bursting well it certainly does depend on the gym that you option your xc40 with there are various alloy options available on the xc40 it's uh, quite customizable from the factory so you would if if that is your objective to avoid potholes and not get punctures it would be best for you to get something with a smaller wheel, perhaps 18 inches, 19 inches. And uh, to my knowledge, I think you can even get 20 or 21 inch wheels on the XC40. That was, that was Jared Neves, our uh, motoring correspondent, as well as many other things that he does here at Biz News. Uh, Magnus, it's been great having you on the program. We look forward to getting you hopefully every Tuesday. Uh, just as a passing shot, you are the man who advises offshore investment. You're not changing that stance? You know, unfortunately, I've, I've kind of been given that, that award, but I started recommending offshore diversification about 10, 11 years ago based on certain facts and some exciting stuff coming out of out of Silicon Valley. I still believe that South Africans are underrepresented when it comes to the offshore investment space. That doesn't mean that I'm not looking at the SA market, and I've written about it and spoken about it, and I've been throwing money in Pitfall Yun's way based on his value fund, the counterpoint value fund. That has done exceptionally well the last couple of months. So there are pockets of, of, of value in South Africa, and if we can find them, we will put our clients into it. But, you know, on, on the global space, it's just so much more that you can uh, look at for your clients uh, as opposed to a very small and a limited market. And it's just part of the, the, the maturity of investors who need a broader 
they need guidance on a space that they're not familiar with. But there have been fantastic funds, fantastic instruments, and uh, wealth-creating instruments relative to the poor performance of the JSC, which is which is undeniable. I'm not I'm not attacking the JSC. I'm just simply referring to the fact that most South Africans are invested in a house and a pension fund. And that has not done the trick the last 10 years or so. Indeed not. And if you are investing offshore, you, um, Jared might even be able to buy Volvo shares rather than wanting to buy the car. But let's close off tonight, uh, Justin, and update us with the markets. The JSC All Share Index is flat at 65,200. Some of the day's highlights include the JSC was down over 7 Rand to 110 Rand a share. Harmony Gold shed 2 Rand 50 to 60 Rand a share on the back of weaker gold spot prices. NASDAQ-bound car track increased by over 2 rand to 74 rand a share. NASPA spin-off process lost 22 rand to 1,640 rand a share as $0.10 was weaker in Hong Kong this morning. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies at 14 rand 83 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 35 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 55 cents to the euro. Gold is low at 1,700 dollars an ounce. Brent crude is up strongly at $63.60 a barrel and Bitcoin is trading at 840,000 rand. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Magnus. And thanks also to Christo Visa for that fascinating interview. All of this on the Biz News Power Hour will be available on uh, Spotify and on iTunes on the Biz News Radio channel. So if you want to make sure you don't miss anything from us, you've got a bit of FOMO, as you should have. If you've only tuned in halfway through the program tonight, you can subscribe to Biz News Radio on those two channels. We'll be back again, same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News. Biz News.